Today's reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1, 1 to 9. It can be found on page 1052 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless in the day, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Karen. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we come into this room and sit down, uh, we may not know much of the goings-on of the lives of people sitting near us, but we come from different kinds of places, and we might come this morning happy, we might come sad. We might come into this place this morning with, uh, with faith, faith maybe that has even surprised us, or we might come and we sit with just great doubts. We wonder if we belong here at all. Some of us come this morning and a new level of fragility exists for us as as our heart maybe feels like it was just ripped open this week. Some of us come and we have something to celebrate, some, some turn of events in our lives that brings us joy. Others of us just are struggling, maybe running up against the same walls we've been hitting over and over again in life. And we wonder, is this what it's all about? Is this even worth it? And as we come from these different places, the truth is we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. All of us uh, is more broken than we are happy about. And so often we hide, often we want to cover up and pave over what's really going on in our lives. But you see it, and your response to that is to move towards us. Shockingly, the story of the Bible keeps telling us that you move towards the brokenness, the chaos, the hurt, the pain, the shame the guilt, and you move towards us as an act of redemption. You, in fact, take the, the pain and the brokenness and the sin upon your own shoulders so that we might not have to. And so that, that cosmic grace that your Bible tells us about, that your story in Scripture tells us about, is what we look to this morning, and we hope to find some grace that touches on every aspect of our lives and drives us deeper into authenticity, into authentic living. Not out of fakeness or, or putting on a front, but out of just the realness 
As, as Christians have long said, we are sinners saved by grace. Help us to meet that grace now in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel Burnham was an impressive man. He was an impressive architect in, a, in an impressive city, the city of Chicago. And he, <laughs> you got the book. Yes, all right. You know about Daniel Burnham. You want to tell us? <laughs> the book, The Devil in the White City. It's a great book. It talks about Daniel Burnham. Daniel Burnham um, was put in charge of, of assembling a team and leading the team to, um, to impress the world in 1893 at the, at the World's Exposition in Chicago. And so he, you know, he had all these collabor- collaborators and architects and engineers, and they were building all these lovely, wonderful buildings, turning this boggy one square mile of swamp in South Chicago into something glorious that would impress the whole world. But they, he had one problem, and that's that they didn't have anything yet that would show the world something in answer to the Eiffel Tower. See, because France had done their world exposition and the Eiffel Tower had just blown the socks off the whole world. And Daniel Burnham wanted to have something that would answer that as they held the, the world exposition in Chicago. And so, so Burnham gathers together a group of engineers that are employed on the project and he chided them for their failure uh, of imagination. He said to avoid humiliation... They needed to come up with something novel, original, and, u- and daring and unique. This is the man who's one of the famous quotes is, make no little plans, for they have little power to, to stir men's blood. That is his, that is his, uh, his most famous phrase. So he's giving this, this kind of guilt talk to all these engineers for not coming up with an idea. And somebody sitting there, his name was George Washington Gale F- uh, Ferris, Jr., big mouthful. He's a 33-year-old engineer from Pittsburgh, and his company was involved already in the steelwork of the fair, and he had an idea. And he starts sketching it down. He adds some specifications, and finally he hands it to Daniel Burnham. And that is where we get our Ferris wheel, right? The Ferris wheel. And it, and it was impressive, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the last time you were on a Ferris wheel, right? How many seats did each car have? Maybe two, right? And you sit with, you know, someone else on this ride and you go around. It takes about like two minutes to get around. The original Ferris, Ferris wheel was, had a 250-foot diameter, so that takes you up 250 feet. Each car held 60 people. That's a little more than maybe what we have sitting here today. And there were 36 cars. That means at one time on the original Ferris wheel, there was 2,000, up to 2,160 people. Ferris wheel. Impressive. The city of Corinth was impressive. Even in their day, the city of Corinth was this seaport town, which meant that it had, had military importance in terms of defenses. It also had, um, it also had commercial importance. And so it was a... It was a very cosmopolitan city with a whole bunch of things going on, and it grew. And at the time of the letter that we read today, 1 Corinthians, it had grown to the size of 500,000 plus, somewhere between 500,000 and 750,000 is what historians say the city looked like. So bigger than the city of Sacramento proper. 
And it was, so it was very impressive and it was very diverse. It was a global city, people coming and going from all over the globe. It was also impressive in terms of um, their ethics. Um, around the world, around that part of the world, they began to use the word Corinthian as an adjective for people who would do just about anything with their bodies. It was, uh, maybe, maybe it was a compliment in some circles, maybe it was an insult in other circles to be Corinthian. And I, so you can't tell me that God doesn't have a sense of humor that that word then becomes the name of two books of the Bible, first and second Corinthian, Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter. He's writing the letter to this Corinthian church. It's a uh, socioeconomically diverse church. It's a probably very small church at this time. And, and they're new. It's filled with new Christians. And he's writing them as the one who started the church, as sort of this wise spiritual guide and pastor. And he's writing them this, what we call the, an epistle, it's a standard form of letter writing from his day, and Paul always uses it and uses the form to make the points that he wants to make. You especially notice that at the beginning of these letters, when it's kind of the boring salutation and greeting parts of the letter, you know, and there's a thanksgiving section. He's already in this thanksgiving section that we just read. It seems kind of like ho-hum, just read through it, a lot of pleasantries, a lot of general things, it seems like, but as you look closely, he's using the form of the letter to already lay the groundwork for what he wants to get across uh, with these people. And he's laying a groundwork that relates to what these people are impressed by and what's, what, the, what impressive even means to them because this is a church that in his absence, and there's been some correspondence, so he's gotten a good read on what's going on in their church, um, they've been getting impressed and, and growing in being impressed by really what Paul thinks is all the wrong things. They've forgotten what's truly impressive about being a Christian or being a Christian church. They've forgotten what's truly impressive about Jesus and about God and about this Christian movement. One of the, be one of the most articulate ways that this has been described is by the old reformer, theologian, great thinker, great Bible scholar, John Calvin. This is what he says about the church at Corinth. He says, Vices prevailed at Corinth with which mercantile cities are wont to be particularly infested. Luxury, pride, vanity, insatiable covetousness, and ambition. So they had found their way even into the church itself so that discipline was greatly laxed or relaxed. Even more, he says, purity of doctrine had already begun to decline so that the main article of religion, the resurrection from the dead, was called into question. And you see that in this letter. And I love this line. Yet amidst this great corruption in every department, they were satisfied with themselves, <laughs> equally as though everything had been on the best possible footing. Now, can you relate to that? I mean, can you be honest and relate to our condition as human beings? Amidst, the great amidst this great corruption in every department, they were satisfied with themselves as though they had been on the best possible footing. As you find out in this letter that the Corinthian church, the, uh, the people at this church were impressed by their charismatic gifts. You know, I'm more spiritually impressive than you are. They were, they were being impressed by their wealth and their importance. They were being impressed by their power and their ability actually to litigate, to, to 
file lawsuits against each other within the church. This is actually happening. But it's not just them. You look at ourselves and you say, well, what are, what are you and I impressed with? What are we impressed with on a daily basis? Is it degrees? You know, letters behind your name or in front of your name? Is it income? Is it other moms who write lofty blog posts while juggling their duties as a homeschooling mom of five? You know, one person looks at another person going through their same phase of life and, you know, something looks impressive. Or maybe it's something about someone else's career achievements, something about you're a neighbor of yours, something about a sibling of yours, and maybe it seems like, you know, mom or dad are more impressed with them than you. Something about someone else's marriage, perhaps, or something about someone else's spouse. What's impressing you? Whatever, and whatever is impressing you, the actions are going to follow. Little by little, small and big decisions in our lives follow the things that we're impressed with. There's a million ways to go wrong. And Paul's letter is here to bring us back. In fact, let me look just at one particular part of our text today and just look at what it says. And see if you can kind of see Paul already in the thanksgiving portion of the letter sneaking in some messages to people who are very impressed with themselves. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Jesus Christ. Grace given. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. What's going on here? He could have said, he could have started out already and said, you know what, you think you're impressive? You're not. <laughs> you're just like everyone else. In fact, you know, let me point out a few things that you're doing wrong. No, he doesn't do... He'll get to some of those things in his own way throughout this letter. But he, he opens it up celebrating what they have, celebrating anything that looks even remotely impressive, and yet what he does is he kind of casts an umbrella over top of all of it, and the umbrella is of, of God's grace. And that anything that they have and that they're experiencing is wonderful. He's talking about it as coming from God, as evidence of Christ among them. He's kind of taking that like emphasis on them and what they're doing and how well they're doing. He's taking that subtly away from them and putting it where it goes. You know, when someone gives you an inappropriately large gift, anybody get a gift that was, I guess you don't have to raise your hand unless you really want to. Anybody get a gift for like the holidays that was just, too big or too much. It was like, what? This is crazy. Are you, are you kidding me? Nobody got a gift like that. I, I was doing a, a wedding of uh, our neighbor, and, and he's into BMWs, and I pretended in the ceremony that I was going to give him keys to a new BMW. Um, it was a, you know, he, it was a joke. I played it right, so he wasn't offended, but I, I, I said, you know, that your best man has the keys to your new Beamer in his pocket, and get it out, and he got out this tiny little toy car and handed it to the groom in the middle, you know, it was, a, it was a joke. We got the size wrong. But if I, if I thought if I had done, that would be inappropriately huge gift for me to give my neighbor for his... Sometimes if you get an inappropriately large gift, what do you focus on? You basically have three options. You can say, focus on myself. Look at me. I deserve... I must be a really special person. I got this gift. Or you could focus on um, the gift itself and say, wow, it's all about this gift and this gift is amazing and show everyone, tell everyone about this gift. 
or really the other option is to focus on, and, and what makes a little more sense, the giver. And if it's an inappropriately large gift, you say, what's wrong with that person? <laughs> In a way, that's, that's what Paul is trying to do with the Corinthians with the idea of what is impressive about being a Christian. It's about, it's about this, this automatic draw of your attention to God and to what God has done and how anything you would claim to have comes from God. And that at the heart of the Christian experience is an inappropriately large gift given to us from God that should puzzle us and that should constantly, if we really are aware of it and that's our focus, it should be turning our attention to this God all the time. But the Corinthians aren't and haven't been in that kind of a place. So that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul does with them being impressive about their gifts. He draws their attention back to God, the giver of grace. That's what's truly impressive, God and his gifts of grace. And what does that begin to look like in our lives if we, if we have that at the center of our lives? What does it mean to put grace at the center of our life? Brennan Manning at a seminar referred to Jesus' closest friend on earth, the disciple named John, identified in the Gospels as the one Jesus loved. And Manning said, if John were to be asked, what is your primary identity in life? He would not reply with you know, something impressive. I am a disciple, an apostle, an evangelist, an author of one of the four Gospels. But rather, as he does in his own Gospel, he would say, I am the one Jesus loves. And what would it mean to ask yourself if you too came to the place where you saw your primary identity in life as the one Jesus loves? I mean, how, how differently would you view yourself at the end of a day if that was your primary identity? I am the one Jesus loves. Lewis Smedes wrote a book called The Art of Forgiving, and he makes the striking observation that the Bible portrays God going through progressive stages when he forgives, much as we humans do. And the stages go like this, just to give you a sense of the, how, how grace should awe us and how we should be awe, in awe of God's grace. First, God rediscovers our, the humanity of the person who wronged him by removing the barrier created by sin. Second, God surrenders his right to get even, choosing instead to bear the cost on his own body. And third, God revises his feelings towards us, finding a way to justify us so that when he looks upon us, he sees his own adopted children with his divine image restored. Now, there's something impressive about that, but it's not us. It's not something we have done. David uh, Siemens uh, is a counselor, and he wrote about his experience uh, counseling Christians, especially evangelical Christians, and he, he wrote this. Many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. 
the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And second, the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. He says, we read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions. And I would say that, I don't know, some people, I know you might hear that, and if you've been in church before, you almost hear that as like a condemnation or something. I would, I would, I would add the tone to that of invitation. That's absolutely the most natural thing in the world that we don't understand grace and that it could take a lifetime to, for it to pierce through all our defenses against grace because we don't really want to receive grace. We want to receive words that describe the impressive thing we can do. And so I want to I kind of reframe the tone of that and say, this isn't a guilt statement. Oh, you don't get grace, you don't understand. I would say, yeah, we don't understand grace, but come, try to. You're invited to the grace table. You're invited to the grace conversation. But it, it's just so hard, and so many people miss it. There's this book called Growing Up Fundamentalist that tells of a reunion of students uh, from a missionary academy in Japan. And with one or two exceptions, the entire class um, found out that they had all turned away from faith and then eventually come back, almost all of them. And all of those who did return to faith had this in common. They had discovered grace. They had figured out grace. Grace had sunk in finally. And so with the Corinthian church, Really, it's like most churches. It's like all churches at one time or another. In fact, most of the time, most churches find themselves, like the Corinthian church, teetering on the brink of missing the point. You know, right on the edge of irrelevancy as grace was replaced by impressive actions, impressive people, impressive agendas, impressive mission statements, impressive leaders, Impressive ethics. And every church eventually must revisit and ask, are we known for grace? Are we known for that? And what might start to happen if word got out? What would it start to maybe look like if word, the word of grace, got out? Somewhere on a sheet here I have something I'm going to read. If I can just find it. It's always a question. Can I find the quote? Just bear with me. There it is. Italian novelist Ignazio Silone wrote about a revolutionary hunted by the police. And in order to hide him, his comrades dressed him in the garb of a priest and sent him to a remote village in the foothills of the Alps. Word got out. And soon a long line of peasants appeared at his door, full of stories of their sins and broken lives. The priest protested and tried to turn them away to no avail. And he had no recourse but to sit and listen to the stories of people starving for grace. What, what does it look like for the word of grace to get out? That grace is here, that grace exists in one place or with one group of people. It's about 
moving from whatever's impressing us, impressing you, to moving towards having an impressive legacy of grace, being impressed by grace, telling stories of grace, celebrating not your accomplishments, but your need for grace and how you found it over and over again in your life. And I know the impulse to even come to church, the impulse to show up in a place like this is often, so often, if we're honest, co-opted by the shiny and glittery, impressive desires of our lives. You know, maybe at church today I'll feel impressive again. Maybe a song will make me feel impressive. Maybe I'll be inspired to get back on the impressive course that I used to be on. And I'm sorry. Well, I don't know if I am sorry. I'm going to be the one today to disrupt uh, your hopes if that's where you find yourself this morning and to tell you to dispense of your ego and all of its resistance to grace. Ruthlessly gut your hopes for an impressive life. Surrender every last impressive impulse and let grace rebuild your identity. Close with this quote from Gordon MacDonald. The world can do almost anything as well as well as or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There is only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Let us pray. God, may your grace be something that works into our lives like yeast into a batch of dough. And we don't know how to get it. We don't know how to open ourselves enough to get it. And even when we feel most open, we still sometimes despair that, we, that you still don't seem real or your grace still hasn't, as others have described, washed into our life like some kind of new flood of living water. We desperately need your help. Once we experience grace, a lot of times we have a, a great high and then years go by and we find that we're in a new chapter of life. And it's almost like we need a new mechanism of grace delivery. The old ways aren't speaking to us anymore. So from all different kinds of places, from um, we might be just, just beginning to knock on the door of faith or of, of Jesus as a redeemer, or we might be new, old old-timers who have been around a long time, we might be revisiting, wherever the case may be, would you please make your grace real? Would you please open up our hearts to that grace, and may it bring healing and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.